Love Talk Radio. good one for you today that's for sure let me give you a little rundown of what we have to look forward to you're not going to want to miss it um the question has now come up is joe biden giving away the farm um in the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill with all those wonderful provisions in it um the answer you'll learn in about five minutes because i'm going to lead with that um, then we have Dennis Prager, conservative commentator Dennis Prager, you know, the guy behind Prager University, which is the most non-university university of all time, maybe even more non-university-ish than Trump University, although that one is debatable. Um, he has COVID, and what he said around that is uh, really something you have to hear for yourself. Um, we have Charles Barkley lashing out at Kyrie Irving for refusing the vaccine. Uh, that's a really interesting thing. A new poll, Trump versus Biden. How's it looking? If there were to be an election today, I'm going to let you know. Nina Turner lights up CNN. Um, We have Meghan McCain whines to Hannity about the trauma of being on The View. And the Washington Post, I wish this was, I wish I was joking about this, but the Washington Post called for a flat-out invasion of Haiti. Add it to the list of all the other invasions that uh, the major newspapers have called for, and you sort of get the picture that 
uh, elite media is pro-war across the board, because they are. All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And uh, we're going to do that with one Joseph Robinette Biden. I like to consider myself a fair dude when I don't like a politician and they do something good. I don't care that I don't like them. I'll tell you that they did something good. In fact, I pride myself on that fact. So, for example, my distaste of Joe Biden is very well known and very well documented to anybody who's followed this show for an extended period of time. But when Joe Biden fully pulled out of Afghanistan, I said, this is a good thing. Now, he was getting dogpiled by elite media over that. And I didn't see many lefties come to his defense. Um, And I think that is incredibly hacky because we've been saying for the longest time we want somebody to fully pull out of Afghanistan. Then he does that, and then you hear crickets. Now, it also is the case that he did a horrendous war crime drone strike that killed innocent civilians. And I pointed that out as well because, again, you have to be intellectually honest. That has to come before uh, any ideological concerns or any personal gripes. Another thing that I brought up on this show and continue to bring up on this show, which I don't see any other lefty commentators do, is that Joe Biden signed an executive order to raise the minimum wage for every single federal government employee and every single federal government contractor, which applies to over 400,000 people, and it was a $15 minimum wage. Now, he also failed to get it into the last reconciliation bill, which was a colossal failure, but you have to point out both those things because both those things are true. I thought Joe Biden was not in favor of the $15 minimum wage. I thought he was honestly lying about that every step of the way. He did that weird hostage video with Bernie where Bernie was like, well, Joe, do you support the $15 an hour minimum wage? And uh, Biden was half asleep in a zombie like, yeah, Bernie, I do. What are we talking about again? I was like, this dude doesn't support a $15 an hour minimum wage. I was wrong. He signed an executive order to raise the federal government uh, minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, again, he has no idea how to fight because he's weak. So he didn't, wasn't able to get into the reconciliation bill. But you have to talk about both those things because within the nuance of that and the complexity of that lies the truth. And a lot of people pretend to be truth tellers and they don't tell you the whole truth. So I tell you all of that to tell you this. The question has now come up. Um, is Joe Biden getting rolled and giving away the farm in this $3.5 trillion reconciliation negotiation. And um, it ain't looking good, folks. So let me give you the update here. This is from Manu Raju of CNN. They're looking at community college scholarships. Also, Medicare expansion is still on the table, as is universal pre-K and ACA funding. That's Obamacare funding. Dems had discussed with Biden $300 billion for climate change measures, but it's not clear how that shakes out. Price tag around $2 trillion. Okay, so you read that and you say community college sort of being stripped out is bad, but all in all, not terrible. Well, now it gets terrible. New, Biden told House progressives tuition-free community college is out of the package for multiple sources. Child tax credit won't go as far as some would like. Likely a one-year extension as opposed to a 10 or a 5. Home health care likely less than $250 billion. Dems had wanted $400 billion. Climate change, still a debate. But we're not done yet. Jeff Stein says, White House comes down again. Intense fears among many Dems right now. They'll get a medley of largely temporary half measures. And then it says news. Per four sources, four, Biden floats a slightly smaller $1.75 trillion to $1.9 trillion package to House progressives, plus just a one-year extension of the child tax credit. So 
you've been following along, the left-wing position was about $10 trillion. Biden wanted $6 trillion. There was the reconciliation uh, package negotiation behind the scenes uh, for which Bernie played a pivotal role. He was able to get us a $3.5 trillion bill. Now, if that bill passed in its entirety, it would have been wonderful. However, I'm not a bullshitter, so I'm not going to lie to you and say that that really had a chance of getting through. But what I've told you guys from the beginning is absolute bare minimum Complete floor would be what? $2 trillion, and again, this is my personal reading of the situation, what I think is gettable and what I think is sufficient. $2 trillion floor, absolute floor, no climate, no deal, and absolutely no means testing in the bill. Well, guess what? It's failing the most basic of the basic litmus tests. Now we're talking about $1.75 to $1.9 trillion, and just so everybody understands, whenever it's presented as this or this, it is 100% of the time the lower number. So it's a $1.75 trillion bill we're talking about. And we're told Biden is now trying to sell progressives on that behind the scenes. Uh, here's my answer on this front. Hell no. Hell no. Not in a million years. I'd vote no, and I'd vote no with a smile on my face. And here's the problem, and this is what's been driving me crazy. Um, actually, let me, I'm typing in as I speak to you guys. The, again, all the key provisions that were in the original. So here's the thing that drives me crazy. If I got the sense that there was an adequate plan behind the scenes from Joe Biden, if I got the sense they were truly negotiating in a way that's even mildly sufficient, then it'd be easier to swallow some of these sour-ass pills. But you and I both know that's not what's happening. And you and I both know Biden probably doesn't really care about the specifics in this reconciliation bill. Biden, my guess is, wants the original $1 or $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill that already passed the Senate he wants that to pass because a lot of that is a corporate giveaway, by the way, with some really good provisions about updating our infrastructure and things of that nature, traditional infrastructure. He wants that package. And then I don't think he cares if the next package is $1 trillion. I don't think he cares because he just wants to say in a similar way to what Obama did, I got something passed. Now get off my ass. He wants to be able to pat himself on the back and say, you know, I'm the great unifier. I told you I could get these Republicans to come along, and I told you, uh, you know, I could get something done. Well, here it is. Well, in the case of Obama, you got Obamacare done, which was a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies, which kept the for-profit health insurance companies in the driver's seat, uh, which made them phenomenally wealthy and didn't even give all Americans health care. It was a Heritage Foundation plan, which is a right-wing think tank. That's what Obama got done. But he went out there and said, look, I'm the great dealmaker. By the way, the great dealmaker, even though not a single Republican voted for Obamacare. And it's probably going to be the same thing with this. No matter how small the reconciliation bill is, no Republicans are going to go vote for it anyway. So you're not some sort of great bipartisan dealmaker. You're, uh, you know, trying to put together a coalition of just the people in your own party and you're letting President Manchin, or excuse me, President Cinema and VP Manchin control the terms of the entire debate. And at this point, I have no doubt that 
what's going on behind the scenes is they're the ones who are throwing jabs and throwing hooks and throwing uppercuts, and it's Joe Biden who's on the defensive and compromising on the compromise of the compromise of the compromise. And that's totally unacceptable. And what progressives need to understand is if you go along with this, uh, nobody will ever take you seriously ever again, and they'd be correct to do that. They'd be correct. Now, early on in this process, progressives did the right thing when there was an attempt to delink the human infrastructure bill from the traditional infrastructure bill. They said, hell no, we're going to vote as a block. Well, now this is another test. Like I said, I could accept a deal of $2 trillion or more, but there has to be climate stuff in there, and there has to be no means testing. What we're looking at now is a bill that is very likely under the $2 trillion number, Means testing is 50-50 as to whether or not it'll be in there. Uh, hopefully, it's not. And it looks like the climate stuff is so incredibly inadequate that it's laughable. And again, this is what happens when you have Joe Manchin as the head of the committee that's going to determine the climate stuff. So what do you do? Well, I don't know how many times I could give you guys the basic formula here, but I'm going to do it again because apparently I'm the only person saying it. You have leverage over Mansion and Cinema. You do, particularly over Mansion. You have a tremendous amount of leverage. Why? Because Joe Mansion is part of a crime family. We just got leaks, emails from Joe, My- uh, Joe uh, Mansion's daughter, who works for a pharmaceutical company, I believe, called Mylan, and she was part of the EpiPen, EpiPen price fixing, price gouging scandal. They have her on email saying, "How do we rationalize jacking up prices to make more money?" So she's a criminal. You have her dead to rights. Joe Manchin, in that great article from The Intercept, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire, he's pulling in millions and millions of dollars from dirty energy. He gets like 500 k a year, more than his salary as a senator, which is about 180000 from the, the dirtiest coal plant in West Virginia. His wife is also involved in um, the price-fixing scandal you have them committing real crimes. So if you're Joe Biden, you have to use that leverage. You have to tell Joe Manchin, Joe, I don't want to do it, but if you don't vote for the legislation, I'm going to have Merrick Garland, the DOJ, look into your family, and you're going to go down. Because as everybody understands, uh, by the time there's a federal case against you, they got you. You're Dunskis. So you have to tell Joe Manchin, look, it's this or that. It's carrot or stick. It's to steal a phrase from Malcolm X, the ballot or the bullet. Well, it doesn't really fit, but you get the point. You vote the right way, and you get some perks. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. If you vote the right way, I'll give you another military base in West Virginia. I'll give you extra infrastructure money. I'll give some, whoever in your family you want a job in my administration. Do you want a job in my administration? You're going to get it. I'll give you whatever you want. But if you vote against it, somebody in your family is going to prison. And it might be you, but it'll probably be your daughter. Now, that's hard-ass politics, that's mafia boss shit, but it is also, I have no doubt, exactly what Lyndon B. Johnson would have done or FDR would have done. It's what they would have done. So, I don't, you don't really want it unless you do that, unless you get to that point. You don't care unless you get to that point. Now, if you want to hold hands and sing Kumbaya, okay, hold hands and sing Kumbaya, but then you're going to get a package that's wildly insufficient. And the other thing is, this is a point that I read last night. I thought it was a wonderful point. 
Dems would actually be better off if you're going to have a package that's that small, that's like $1.75 trillion or whatever. Um, you would be better off picking two big programs and fully funding them in a universal sense for 10 years as opposed to this piecemeal approach where it's a bunch of little half measures. Um, but there's a reason why they can't do that, which is the political reality that you can't put, hold together the coalition unless people get the little things that they care about. The senators get the little things that they care about, and the senators care about different things. So, you know, you can't do, uh, let's say, universal pre-K for the entire country for 10 years and free college for the entire country for 10, for 10 years. And because then the people who are in it for elder care or the people who are in it for the child tax credit, they don't get the thing that they want, and so the coalition falls apart. So you're really holding it together with duct tape and bubble gum at that point, so you can't do that approach, even though that approach would politically help way more. But look at where we are now. Look at where we stand. Joe Manchin is in the driver's seat, even though Biden has leverage to use on him. And Kirsten Cinema. now she's the one who's really the wild card, because as I've told you, I'm not convinced she wants to stay in D.C. She very well may have plans of leaving and going to work at, for, as a soulless lobbyist for some mega corporation that's going to pay her $2 million a year to sit on her ass. Uh, and if that's the case, what leverage can you use when she's out no matter what you do? You can't force her to do something if she doesn't have, you know, re-election hopes. So you just have to hope that she's not already planning on ditching D.C. And honestly, it's a 50-50 question. I don't know. Maybe she does want to stay. Maybe she doesn't. I don't know. If some in, uh, actions indicate she wants to leave, but also politicians rarely want to give up power. I mean, Diane Feinstein is a thousand years old and uh, literally losing her mind, and she's in there. Chuck Grassley's 90 years old, and he wants to run for re-election. So I don't know, but you still have to try to play hardball with her. You still have to try the carrot stick approach with her. You still have to do the mafia boss shit with her too. You still have to let her know, you know, I'll give you what you want if you do the right thing. If you don't. Here are going to be the punishments. Here are going to be the consequences. You're never going to have a job in D.C. again. I, Joe Biden, will personally call the heads of all the corporations and say, don't give her a job if she leaves. You're the president of the United States. You have tremendous power. You can flex it. You can flex it. So it looks like at the last minute, Joe Biden is giving away the farm. And if these are the terms of the deal, then I say hell no. Now, even if you play hardball, and this is, this is where, you know, I change the conversation and I'm talking to my friends on the left. Um, even if you play the hardball, you might only be able to get a $2.5 trillion deal. But $2.5 trillion is doable as long as there's climate in there and there's no means testing in there. And it's acceptable, and I would vote for it. But now we're talking about $1.75 trillion giving away the farm, and it's honestly a joke of a bill. So this is my, my message to progressive lawmakers is don't vote for this one. If these are the terms of the deal, no way. If you played hardball, maybe there's a – if Joe Biden did the right thing and approached this the right way, there is a 20 or 30 percent chance he could have gotten them on $3.5 trillion. You know, I'm not naive. I know it's still not likely even if he played politics the right way. But definitely if you play politics the right way, I think you could get them on – Two trillion or more, 2.5 trillion, maybe 2.9 trillion. Um, but he's not doing it the right way, which is pathetic because what we have right now is a transformational moment in American history, and we have a status quo incrementalism president. And it's just not going to cut it. And the Democrats are looking like they're going to get absolutely clobbered in the midterms. So even for just political reasons, not policy reasons, but political reasons, even for political reasons, 
you have to try to save your own ass and throw a Hail Mary pass here and do something that's going to massively increase your approval rating, which right now is down in the dumps. So we could have had phenomenal bill, but it looks like Joe Biden is ultimately going to be Joe Biden. So now it's on the left to stand up and vote it down. Vote it down. You got to do what you got to do. I don't see any other way to handle this. You can't every single time there's a negotiation and there's a bill accept crumbs of the crumbs of the crumbs because you're never going to be taken seriously. And at least if you flex muscle now, people understand, really, you're in the driver's seat. Because there's only, a, there, literally, for this bill, there's only two hard-ass, uh, you know, basically Republican-light Democrats. So if there's two of them in the Senate, well, guess what? Let's say we have a dozen progressives in the House who are willing to flex their power even more. That sends a message, and it sends a message that there's more of us, and you're going to have to reckon with us. And now the deals are on our terms, son. There you have it. Um, obviously, I still have my fingers crossed. I hope the reporting is wrong, or I hope somehow it can be over $2 trillion. But it doesn't look good at the moment. And if it doesn't look good, and you're a progressive lawmaker, there's only one thing left to do, and they better have the balls to do it. Okay. One more thing, actually. And just the final reminder of what was in the original $3.5 trillion package, which there was a chance you could get if you knew what you were doing politically behind the scenes in the negotiation. The original bill had child tax benefits, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, immigration, lower Medicare age, Obamacare expansion, um, and then increased taxes on the wealthy, not just uh, raising the income tax, but also with taxing corporation and fees on polluters and negotiating uh, Medicare. So, what could have been if FDR was sitting in that White House or LBJ was sitting in that White House or a half-competent you know, president who really cared about this stuff was in the White House. But unfortunately, we have a half-asleep zombie who's willing to take the incrementalism on top of the incrementalism within the incrementalism. And here we are. Okay. All right, guys, let's continue. Dennis Prager. So Dennis Prager is a right-wing commentator, and he is, of course, behind PragerU, Prager University. It's the least like a university of the so-called universities. It's right up there with uh, Trump University, which was a proven fraud that Trump had to pay out millions of dollars in payments because he was sued over it and he lost. Um, they just, it's right-wing propaganda 
on steroids and human growth hormone, and it's amazing that anybody really falls for it and believes it. Well, anyway, this guy um, went on his radio show, which he was doing from his home, his home, and you're going to find out why. turns out he has COVID, but he's happy about that? Okay, everybody, all good. I'm broadcasting from my home <laughs> because I'm not going into the station as I have COVID. I came, uh, I was tested positive last week, and I have been uh, steadily improving. At no point was I in danger of hospitalization. I have uh, received monoclonal antibodies. That's Regeneron. I have, of course, for years, a year and a half, not years, been taking hydroxychloroquine from the beginning with zinc. I've taken ZPAC, the erythromycin, as the Zelenko protocol would have it. I have taken ivermectin. I have done what a person should do if one is not going to get vaccinated. It is infinitely preferable to have natural immunity than vaccine immunity. And that is what I hoped for the entire time. Hence, I so uh, engaged with strangers, constantly hugging them, taking photos with them, knowing that I was making myself very susceptible to getting COVID, which is indeed as bizarre as it sounded, what I wanted, in the hope that I would achieve natural immunity and be taken care of by therapeutics. That is exactly what has happened. It should have happened to the great majority of Americans. The number of deaths in this country uh, owing to COVID is a scandal, which one day will be clear to Americans. Not looking so good, champ. Not looking so good. I like how at the beginning he's like, all good. <laughs> he's got uh, one of those buttons that, you know, shuts off the mic when you cough. Um, he coughed at the beginning of the segment. He says, I was hugging people like this is what I wanted. I wanted to get natural immunity. So his anti-COVID strategy is to get COVID. Not sure that's the best idea, dog. Not sure that's the best idea, and I have, what, 720,000 corpses that prove my point? I mean, listen, here's my little conspiracy theory about this. I think Dennis Prager probably did get the vaccine. I think he did, because you do have all these hosts at Fox News, probably some of the hosts at One American News Network and Newsmax, they're taking these nominally anti-vaccine positions, or at the very least anti-mandate positions, and um, they're feeding the audience what they want to hear. But what they're not telling you is that virtually all of them are vaccinated. Um, so they're protected, but they're feeding the audience this line that, hey, maybe it's not the right thing to get the vaccine. If you'll notice, no national level 
political commentator on the right has died of COVID. But at the same time, there's been, Jesus Christ, I don't even know the number at this point. I might not be exaggerating when I say six or seven right-wing radio hosts at the local level and the state level that have died of COVID. Because here's the difference. The state and local right-wing commentators are true Kool-Aid drinkers. They have real ideological commitments against the vaccine. And so they didn't get the vaccine. And then when they got COVID, a bunch of them died. Also, because they're old and a bunch of them probably have a bunch of comorbidities as well. Uh, Dennis Prager is old as dirt. So if he is one of the people who's truly committed and didn't get the vaccine, then he might have a little bit of a rough go of it. But if he did get the vaccine, which I think there's a, I think it's 60, 40, 60% he did get the vaccine, 40% he didn't. Um, He'll be fine if he got the vaccine. And the other thing is um, you can't downplay the fact that he took the monoclonal antibodies I know he mentioned hydroxychloroquine there. The studies on that are pretty conclusive at this point. It doesn't really help with COVID. Um, Ivermectin, at best, we don't know yet if it helps, but a lot of the evidence I've seen indicates that it doesn't help with COVID. Um, But the fact that he's taken those monoclonal antibodies, which is the stuff that was given to Donald Trump, and the fact that he's taken uh, zithromycin, you know, that's another part of the standard treatment regimen for COVID, he's taking some drugs that do help with COVID. So even if he is unvaccinated, that as well can help save him. Um, Because I'm sure a lot of the local and state level right-wing radio hosts, they probably, most of them didn't get any treatment or if they did get treatment, it wasn't the top, top level, you know, monoclonal antibody treatment. So, um, He's probably going to end up being okay because of that treatment, but also, I think, because 60% chance he is vaccinated. Because he strikes me as the type who is smart enough to know, of course, getting the vaccine is the right thing. The data is overwhelming. Anybody who looked at the data, I mean, what was that study in France? 22 million people. That's as big as a study as you're going to get. Cut severe COVID risk by 90% if you're vaccinated. That says a lot. I've shown you the chart on this show hospitalization, people who got the vaccine versus people who didn't. The people who got the vaccine, it's a near flat line. I mean, it, it ticks up a touch, um, but near flat line. People who didn't get the vaccine and hospitalization, you go straight up. I think Dennis Prager knows that. I think he does. I think he does. So probably going to be okay, but think about the message this sends to the audience. Because probably most of the people in the audience, if they get COVID and they're not vaccinated, who knows if they have access to that monoclonal antibody stuff? Who knows? You know, I read a while ago, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but I read a while ago that there was a shortage of that stuff. So, you know, Dennis Prager, I'm sure he's well off financially. He can afford to get that treatment. Some of the people listening, maybe not. And so you're really sending a terrible message to your audience. And there was data that came out recently, a couple months ago, that showed it is more so hitting red America than blue America. So most of the COVID deaths right now are centered in red America. And with razors, thin election margins, at what point is it like the message you're pitching is killing off your voters and that might actually impact elections? But imagine saying that publicly. I was trying to get COVID. 
you were trying to get COVID. Yeah, it was my, my anti-COVID strategy is to get COVID. Imagine applying that logic anywhere else. My anti-murder strategy is to murder. What? Probably better off getting vaccinated and trying not to get COVID. That would be my super brilliant genius level advice to everybody when it comes to this pandemic. Okay. Next. You know, I've told you guys a number of times that uh, NBA on TNT is my favorite show. It's, I think it's the best thing on TV. And uh, the reason it is, the guys are hilarious and they are brutally honest. They didn't get the memo that if you're on, that if you're part of mainstream media, that, you know, you got to be, you got to tone it down and you got to filter the things you say and you have to walk on eggshells. They don't give a fuck. And so uh, Shaq is great, Kenny's great, Chuck is great, EJ is great. It's just the best chemistry on TV. Anyway, um, so last night was the kickoff of the NBA season. Um, I saw both games, by the way. The Bucks look phenomenal. That Lakers team is interesting because it's like a who's who of stars from the mid-aughts. You know what I mean? So you got like Carmelo Anthony, Russell Westbrook. Dwight Howard, of course, LeBron James. Uh, that team could be a problem if they find, you know, their rhythm and their footing and their, their own chemistry. Uh, but they lost to the Warriors because, of course, Steph Curry's a monster. Anyway, uh, they talked about Kyrie Irving and the fact that he's refusing to get the vaccine. I think at this point he might be the only – no, it's like him and Bradley Beal, I think, are the only holdouts in the NBA or the only, like, very public ones. I think I read a fact that it was 95% of the NBA at this point is vaccinated. Like, I think Andrew Wiggins was hesitant to do it, but then eventually he did it. Well, uh, Charles Barkley has some thoughts on what Kyrie is doing here, and there's a little bit of a debate between him and Kenny. They also talked to Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, about Kyrie's refusal to take the vaccine. Let's take a look, and then we'll break it down. with a 90-minute pregame show, and in the course of that 90 minutes, we had a chance to talk to the commissioner, Adam Silver. One of the questions was if you could uh, send a message to Kyrie Irving, who was unvaccinated and not playing for Brooklyn, what would it be? I'd tell him to get vaccinated, first and foremost, for himself and his family, next for his teammates um, and his community, and also for the league that I know he cares so much about. Um, I understand, you know, that it's not just Kyrie. There are people in this country um, who disagree with the notion of getting vaccinated. But at least from everything that I understand, science is firmly on the side of getting vaccinated. New York City law says you uh, have to be vaccinated or you cannot be at uh, large indoor gatherings, sporting events like this included. So while Kyrie Irving could not play at home or practice at home, he could play on the road, but then the Nets decided, no, we're just, if you're not going to be around for our home games, you're not going to be here for the road games either. What do you think? Well, I, I think two things. One, I, I would say I have empathy for what Kyrie is. Like, I can understand that he has an uncomfortability about vaccination. I'm not going to sit here and think that I'm, because I'm vaccinated and want to believe in vaccinations that I'm smarter because I probably 
most people got vaccinated probably don't know the four ingredients inside of it, that inside of vaccination. But the same way the people who are unvaccinated probably couldn't tell you the four ingredients in an aspirin. So it really comes down to comfortability. Like what you've read and what you've understand, are you comfortable with it? Do I have sympathy? No. Uh, do I have empathy? Yes. Do I understand that he could be uncomfortable with getting vaccinated? Sure. And as long as he's willing to take the consequences for it, I cannot stop him. Now, if he says, oh, I shouldn't do this, and he's taking the consequences for it, I can understand it. That's your choice. Maybe I wouldn't do that, but that's what the your buddy over here is grimacing. Chuck, first of all, you don't get the vaccine for yourself. You get it for other people. No, I'm not saying. Hold on, brother. Well, you said your feet. No, I, I didn't Listen, say you do. I, I got vaccinated. I can't wait to get the booster. I don't, you don't get vaccinated just for yourself. Like Adam said, you get vaccinated for your family first. You get vaccinated for your teammates, second, things like that. That's what bothers me about this whole thing. I think everybody should get vaccinated. The only, and the limitation, I really am proud of the Nets for putting their foot down, uh, for saying, no, we're not going to deal with this half on, half on, half off. The only thing that bugs me, he's still going to make $17 million sitting at home. I wish they could find a way... If he wants to go on this thing, like, you know, people say he's like Ali. First of all, don't ever compare anybody to Ali. Ali went three years without boxing. He was the highest paid athlete in the world. This guy's going to make $17 million for sitting at home. But to every person out there, you don't get vaccinated just for yourself. And don't get that out the way. Let Shaq have his say. We only have about a minute left. I try not to tell a person what they should and shouldn't do, right, to each his own. However... In this land that we live in, there's laws and society. And then, Kenny, you know this is what I'm about to say. In order to win the championship, you got to sacrifice. So if I have the thoughts that I have, and then you as Kevin Durant, you say, I'm going to get it, and then you as James Harden say, I'm going to get it, I might as well get it. But Chuck makes a great point. It ain't about you, it's about getting everybody else. I mean, because I had some, you know, second thoughts, but, you know, I said, you know what, I'm not going to get Dr. Lucille O'Neill sick. I'm not going to get Latifah. I'm not going to get And I said this. No, I want to say one thing. Give a shout-out to one of my ex-teammates who was in the ICU for the last month with COVID. Said Sabalos, I'm glad you're on the man. I love you. I'm glad you, you beat this thing, brother. The uh, Brooklyn Nets without Kyrie Irving taking on the Milwaukee Bucks here on opening night. Milwaukee with the halftime lead by seven. So um, originally, what they let me get, let me give everybody the total breakdown so you understand this. The uh, the NBA said um, we're going to have a policy. They originally wanted a policy of mandatory vaccinations for everybody. Now the the refs union had some people who were against it, but most were for it. And so the the more people won, they voted on it, and they were for mandatory vaccinations. All the refs uh, vaccinated. The players' union said that's a non-starter. We're not in favor of mandatory vaccinations. Um, and so the NBA took a position of get vaccinated or test. That was their, their position. And, again, about 95% of the NBA ended up getting vaccinated. Now, the problem that arose is that in both California and New York, they have laws that say if you're going to be at a big gathering – you have to be vaccinated. So for Kyrie Irving playing for the Brooklyn Nets, in order for him to play at the home games, he has to be vaccinated. And he refuses to get vaccinated. Now, I read that Kyrie, it's not just that he's like, 
it's not like he has a r- religious issue with it. Um, it's he's actually gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole where he was liking some posts about how there's like a microchip in it trying to track you. Okay, well, listen, on that front, Kyrie, you're just wrong. Like, you're just believing charlatans and frauds. And um, the evidence, I, I mean, I don't need to bring this up. You guys all know this by this point. But the evidence of the efficacy of the vaccine is overwhelming. French study of 22 million people, and it cut severe COVID risk by 90%. Study of 22 million people. 22 million. Um, you know, the chart of people vaccinated going to the hospital versus unvaccinated unvaccinated spikes, uh, it's almost a total flat line for vaccinated folks. So you guys all know that. Kyrie went down some conspiracy rabbit hole. By the way, remember when he was flirting with, like, flat earth theory not that long ago? So he's just, he's just misreading the evidence. And then his stubbornness is getting in his way. He thinks he's taking some brave principled stand. And uh, Charles Barkley comes out here and lays the smack down. And he's like, it's not just about you. It's also about everybody around you. Which is also, by the way, why... You know, right now the vaccine is approved for 12 years old and up. It's why 12 and 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds should get the vaccine. It's, it, yes, it's overwhelmingly likely if you're 13 and you get COVID, you're going to recover. All the data shows that. Very tiny number of people who've actually passed away from COVID um, if you're that young. But you get the vaccine for herd immunity so that you don't pass it to grandma or grandpa or dad or mom or, you know, your obese neighbor who you might pass it to and they might die. So Charles Barkley's point is, Listen, I know people who are in the hospital with COVID or were on a ventilator and they're in the ICU and I know people who've died and it's not just about you, it's about them too. So you're not some sort of hero. Stop pretending you're some sort of hero. You just misread the evidence and you're stubborn on the situation. Now, I'm surprised that basically everybody on that panel um, sort of is against Kyrie. I thought Shaq was going to come in with more of an individualism argument, but he didn't. He didn't, because he said, I was thinking of my kids, and I was like, so I better do it. And Charles Barkley's point is, it's about, it's about your family. It's about your teammates. It's about, you know, everybody in society. You're trying to protect people. Um, so it was interesting to see that. Now, I will say, though, this is where even my, I think my own audience disagrees with me on this, because I polled it. My take has always been, I'm not in favor of hard mandates. And the reason I'm not in favor of hard mandates is very simple. A hard mandate presupposes that the government is always looking out for you in your best interest. Now, as of, for this particular issue with the COVID vaccine, it works. And so for them to say, get the vaccine, they are looking out for your best interest, whether or not you realize it, okay? But this is not every instance. And we all know how misleading the government can be, how full of liars they are. Uh, we all know the historical situations of the government doing incredibly nefarious things. Tuskegee experiments, the Bay of Pigs, Operation Northwoods. I mean, the list goes on and on. And you say, well, Kyle, that's in the past. Past. It's not just in the past. You know, it's also we're still undermining democratically elected governments and trying to overthrow them and put in dictators. And so you should have a skepticism of the institutional powers. Where I diverge from the Kyrie types is that your skepticism shouldn't become cynicism. So because some conspiracies are true doesn't mean every single conspiracy is true. Because sometimes the government's not looking out for your best interest doesn't mean that all the time they're not looking out for your best interest. Uh, And with 720,000 corpses piled on top of each other, 
yeah, the reason they say get the vaccine is because they don't want that shit to be a million or two million or four million, you know? So I've always said I'm in favor of like a soft mandate. So what does that mean? That means kind of like what Biden did where he said, listen, either get the vaccine or get tested all the time. Those are your options. I'm not saying you have to get the vaccine. You actually don't have to get the vaccine. But if you're not going to get the vaccine, it might be a little bit of a pain in the ass because you're going to have to take tests all the time. Totally fine with that. So you want to make it a little bit of an inconvenience for people to not get the vaccine? That's fine. Because then they can't say, oh, my freedom, oh, my liberty. We're giving you your freedom and your liberty. Because nobody's saying you have to take the vaccine. So where I end up falling in the whole situation is where the NBA originally was, which is, Everybody should get vaccinated, and it should be incentivized to get vaccinated. Somebody made a good point uh, to me, saying, if you just pay people to get vaccinated, like, the vaccination rate would probably be at least 10 percentage points higher. That's probably true. If 200 bucks everybody get vaccinated, the vaccination rate would be way higher. But um, ultimately, you could do that, but that's not going to affect Kyrie. So the true ideological types, it's like, okay, you want to be an idiot and you want to be wrong? Fine. But since he's always around a whole bunch of people, you know what? you're going to have to do daily testing. I do, if that can give us the same outcomes, so nobody else is going to get sick and he doesn't have to take the vaccine, even though he's wrong to not want to take the vaccine, I don't see the problem with that. You see what I'm saying? So either, for, in Kyrie's situation, either get vaccinated or do daily testing. So I would, I would hope New York and California would both, you know, basically pass laws saying, okay, you can either get vaccinated or do daily testing instead. So that's where I fall on it. I'm not saying Charles Barkley and Shaq and Kenny are wrong because uh, what they're doing is making, taking a hard-line stance and with passion calling for Kyrie to do the right thing, which is get the vaccine and make no mistake about it. It is the right thing. But uh, I guess I have a little more, not just empathy, but also sympathy for people who distrust our institutions so much that it's almost like they break their own brains and their cynicism and their skepticism becomes cynicism. Uh, That's not where I am. I think you have to look at everything on a case by case basis and evaluate rationally each time. But I do understand where that instinct comes from. And I do understand that to get brainwashed by misinformation, it's a process for people to basically deconvert you from stupidity. And if you're not going to be able to do that, you know, just get tested every day. So uh, originally they were saying Kyrie could play half the season and on the road he'll play with uh, the Nets and when they're at home he won't play. But then the Nets said, no, fuck that. We're not going to have like two totally separate teams, a star player on and a star player off. How is the chemistry going to work and everything? So no, no. Uh, You're just going to sit out until you get vaccinated. Um, We'll see if that ends up making him actually do it. I'll tell you this, if he doesn't do it, I think his stock as a player plummets. And I think other teams that might potentially look at him for the future would be like, we don't really want to deal with him because he's an idiot and he's stubborn. And what does that say about his work ethic? What does that say about his ability to listen when plays are drawn up? What does that say about his, you know, accepting a role on the team and not trying to be the end all be all. I think that it speaks a lot to his mindset and you're going to have other teams look at that and say, I don't want to deal with that shit. And so his stock plummets as a player. So that's where I stand on the whole situation. He should get vaccinated. If he doesn't, I'd be fine with daily testing. But either way, I like to see, you know, somebody aggressively make the case. And that's what Charles Barkley is doing. That's what all of them on the panel are doing. 
They're saying you're not some sort of hero. You're actually being pretty stupid. And I think that's correct. Okay. Next. Let's talk about this new shocking poll. Oh, you guys are going to like this one. You guys are going to like this one. So we have a new poll out that I want to share with you guys. This is in Mediaite. They say, shock poll, Trump has a higher favorability rating than Joe Biden. Wow. Because it wasn't that long ago that Joe Biden was leagues ahead, dog. Like, Joe Biden at like 54% or 52%. And uh, now let me give you some of the specifics of this one. It's a Quinnipiac University poll, and it was released Tuesday. Joe Biden's favorability rating among registered voters is 40%, 40% favorability rating. Wow. Um, Donald Trump's, 41. Now, that's really a statistical tie, but I remember in 2016 when there was one poll that came out. All the polls had Hillary up, Hillary up, Hillary up. And then one poll came out pretty close to the election that was like, actually, Trump's leading by 1%. And I looked at that and I was like, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, here we go, here we go. I'm saying the same uh-oh, SpaghettiOs right now. Biden at 40%, Trump at 41%. So let me give you some more stuff from this poll because it's all interesting. 51% of those surveyed uh, said that the country is worse off now than it was a year ago. That's despite the fact the vaccine against covid had yet to be developed. Wowzers. Wow. That's a red flag if I've ever seen one, dog. Uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress fared even worse, as they always do. Um, Just 24% of registered voters said they approve of the job congressional Republicans are doing. 24%. You want to know why? Because... They ain't doing Dickie McGee's acts, but obstructing and voting no. Not helping the American people, not passing any productive legislation. Uh, Their whole thing is even propose a mild, watered-down, incrementalist improvement to society, and wrong. Go fuck yourself. I'm against it. Now, the Democrats, I have the Democratic number here. Hold on one second. Actually, let me say, so 24% approval of the Republican Party in Congress 68% disapproval. That's pulled a little better. 32% of voters approve. So 8 percentage points higher. And 62% disapprove. So in other words, um, a few more approve of the Democrats. And my guess is it's because at least they're trying to pass some sort of positive legislation. I mean, this bill, the original $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill over a decade has a child tax benefit and universal pre-K and paid family leave and paid medical leave and lower prescription drug uh, prices and Medicare expansion and home care, all sorts of positive stuff. So I think you're seeing a little bit of a reflection of that in the polls where whoever's really educated on that stuff can say, um, yeah, 
I have a higher approval rating of them simply because they're trying something. Um, just 35% of voters said they want to see Trump run for president again. See, this is where it gets complicated because Trump has a higher favorability rating than Biden, but only 35% of voters want to see Trump run again. Uh, now, that number went up since May. It was only 30% in May, but still, that's a, that's a low number. Meanwhile, 52% said they believe Trump has been undermining democracy since the 2020 election. That number actually gives me a little bit of hope because it is true. Basically, everything Trump has said since he lost the election is whining and crying and bitching and moaning about how he didn't really lose the election and the election was stolen, even though all the evidence points in the other direction. And there were 60 plus court cases over this and he lost almost every one, even from judges he appointed and other Republican judges. They were like, there's no evidence that you won the election. Stop. So he's been going out there making that case, and more than half the country is like, you're wrong, and you're undermining democracy. So that gives us a little bit of hope. But I will say, man, this is, this is a rough one. There was a poll from July where they were looking at the 2024 Democratic primary race. Now, I know that's a long way off, but bear with me here for a second. Now, in that poll, um, 73% say, you know, Biden again. Okay. Well, that was at a time when Biden's approval rating was like 54%. It was high. Uh, right underneath Joe Biden. So if it's not Joe Biden, because Lord only knows if he'll make it to 2024. He's a zombie today. And again, his numbers are plummeting. So let's say for argument's sake, he can't run in 2024. So if it's not Biden, then you have Michelle Obama in second place, 34%, tied with Kamala Harris at 34%. Then you have Mayor Pete at 19%. Bernie Sanders, who's definitely not going to run at 19%. Elizabeth Warren at 19%. We all know how well her campaign went last time, how it imploded gloriously. Stacey Abrams at 15%. Cory Booker at 14%. AOC at 9%. Andrew Yang at 7%. And he's obviously not going to do that. He started a new third party. And then, you know, you have 6% none of the above and 1% said, well, somebody else. So... This is a bit of a disaster. This is a bit of a disaster because Trump has a higher favorability rating than Biden. So that would be potentially a close race if it was a rematch. If Biden can't run for whatever reason, if it's Michelle Obama or Kamala Harris or Mayor Pete who are the next top three, I have no faith that they would win that election easily against Trump or against a generic Republican. In fact, I think they're uniquely bad that they might get their clock cleaned if any of the three were the option. So listen, it's a tough moment right now for people in the entire country, but also people on the left specifically, because if you don't get this good reconciliation bill, if you get some massively watered down version of this reconciliation bill, you get wiped down the midterms, you could lose in 2024. Even if you hang on and are competitive in 2024, what's Michelle Obama or Kamala Harris or Mayor Pete going to do? They're also going to do compromises on the compromise of the compromise of the compromise. They're also going to do incrementalism. So really, my, I'm pleading to the Democrats. I'm pleading to Joe Biden. For the love of God, you've got to do everything you can right now for policy reasons to make the country better and to prove the, improve the lives of the American people, but also for politics reasons. 
you have to get real change implemented. You have to get the child tax benefit for five or 10 years, get universal pre-K for five or 10 years, pay family leave, paid medical leave, lower prescription drug costs. If you don't materially deliver for the American people, game, set, match, dog. Like what? Democrats out of power for 10 years, Republicans pass more tax cuts and more deregulation for the rich and wage two more wars. And we have no time to to spare for climate change-related stuff, too. So everything rides on this moment right now. And I I know that sounds hyperbolic. It's not even slightly hyperbolic. You have to get that reconciliation bill passed. You have to get those very positive um, provisions implemented into law. And even then, you know, you got to buckle up and hope you can hang on. Why? Because they didn't pass a voting rights bill, which means that, Republicans have like a six percentage point built-in advantage. So even if the Democrats win by six percentage point in the popular votes in, in midterm, then they can still end up losing seats. So the deck is totally stacked against right now. And of course, they're not treating the moment with the seriousness that it deserves because they all have West Wing brain. They all have a new Democrat coalition brain. Uh, they're smoking from that corporatist crack pipe as hard as anybody could. And so on a policy perspective, we might get not much. And in a politics perspective, we might get obliterated. And it's hard for people on the left to see any sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Well, the best case I can make for you guys right now is this. We're currently witnessing a revival of the labor movement. We're seeing worker strikes all across the country. And that's a phenomenal thing. So a lot of your energy should be geared towards that. You know, we're going to have uh, going to have Jonah Furman, who's a phenomenal labor reporter, who's really following the John Deere strike closely. He's coming on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week, and I highly recommend everybody checks that out because you're going to get a real picture of just how sleazy John Deere is acting, just how sleazy management in these corporations are are acting, and how much the workers are fighting for their rights and better pay and better benefits. Um, so that's one of the most important things going on right now. And then outside of that, you know, you got to try to get direct ballot initiatives and direct reform for the people to vote on issues to improve their lives. You know, we saw it in, uh, in the 2020 election. Florida had a direct ballot initiative on a $50 minimum wage, and it got 60% of the vote passed overwhelmingly, even with Donald Trump winning the state of Florida. What does that tell you? It tells you when you give the American people their you know, a direct say on a specific policy issue, like 80% of the time, they're going to go the right way. And I've seen it. I've seen it. The only time they don't is usually when there's like massive propaganda against voting the right way. So whatever the propaganda was against $15 minimum wage, it wasn't enough to overcome people's common sense. So those are the, the two lights at the end of the tunnel. Revival of the labor movement, which is phenomenal, and um, people getting directly involved on specific issues specific issue advocacy. And then outside of that, all you can do is harangue these politicians to do better. Harangue the Democrats to actually fight. Harangue them to put Manchin and Cinema in their place and for us to get a decent legislation through. Because right now, with what Joe Biden's doing, it ain't enough. You know? I mean, for the love of God, he can eliminate all student loan debt right this second. $1.7 trillion worth. And he's not doing it. There's no excuse to not do that. He could legalize marijuana right this second, take it off scheduled uh, substances list. He's not doing it. Colossal failure. And there will be no legacy to speak of because uh, he's 
acting a lot more like Bill Clinton than he is like FDR or LBJ. Okay. Let me do one more, then we'll take a break. So Nina Turner went on CNN, and they spoke about Manchin and Cinema and the negotiation going on right now for the reconciliation bill. And um, she lights up Democratic Party hack Paul Begala. This is glorious to see. Well, I am glad that they are talking. But talks with Senator Manchin has been happening for a very long time, including the President of the United States himself. I am glad that Senator Sanders had the courage to smoke out Senator Manchin by writing that op-ed, forcing him uh, to have this conversation. So conversation is always good, but it just can't go on forever. Tatiana, the longer they are in talks, the less likelihood we're going to have the strong package that is needed to elevate and to uplift the American people who need it the most. And this cannot be pushed down the road because we don't know what may happen in 2022. So we need to get this done right now. Frankly, I think Manchin is more progressive than he gets credit for. I think Bernie is more pragmatic. I love that these two guys are talking. All right, Senator Turner, progressive. What? Sorry, go on. The label, I mean, I'm so sorry, pragmatic, practical, People are literally losing their lives and their livelihoods while people play games. We are already at the compromise position, and that is what we must understand here. And look, the overwhelming majority of West Virginians agree with this. West Virginia is one of the poorest states in the United States of America, and you have a senator who is set for the rest of his natural life, and so are his children and his children's children. And he want to negotiate away. Senator imagine what do you want to negotiate away? Is it child care? Is it the implosion of Mother Earth? Is it health care? What is it, Brianna? He is not saying what it is. So this is not about who's pragmatic and who's practical and who's progressive. This really is about, in this moment, whose side you are on. And let the American people remember this. Six trillion dollars was the original number. We are down to 3.5 trillion dollars. How low are we going to go to sacrifice the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class in the United States of America? Hell, the Senate just gave, I think, what, 10 billion more dollars? to, the, to the, the military budget than what was asked for, but then you want the American people to take crumbs. It's just unconscionable. I love Paul Begala's face at the end there when he just got schooled. He's like, what do I say now? What do I do now? Can I get some talking points from Gottheimer, please? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, needless to say, Nina's, 100% correct. They did just add more money to the military budget. More money. We already spend more than the next 10 or 12 biggest uh, countries combined, and most of those countries are our allies. And notice something. When we talk about the military budget, why do we talk about it over the period of one year? When we talk about the reconciliation bill, we talk about the price tag over 10 years. Notice the asymmetry there. So in other words, the military budget is about 8 trillion dollars over a decade. Nobody calls it the $8 trillion bill, but this reconciliation bill 
they call the $3.5 trillion bill. It's really $350 billion a year. So we're spending way more on the military than we are on programs that materially help the American people and fix our country. And the real issue here is you have the vast majority of Democratic lawmakers are actually on the right page for this thing, and it's two who are blocking it. Now, when you look at the specifics of what's going on with those two senators who are blocking it, you find out they are totally bought and owned by industry. Kirsten Cinema has been doing a cocktail circuit tour, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars from every single corporate interest lined up against this bill. Hobnobbing with lobbyists, taking, what, $920,000 from Big Pharma as she comes out against lowering prescription drug prices when she previously ran on lowering prescription drug prices. Call that what it is. It's not centrism. It's not moderation. It's not an honest ideological disagreement. It is corruption brought about by legalized bribery from industry. That's what it is. Now, why is almost nobody telling you that in mainstream media? Thankfully, Nina Turner goes on there and lays down the law. Joe Manchin makes more money from the dirtiest coal plant in West Virginia every year than he does from his own salary as a senator. He makes 180000 or so as a, uh, for senator, about 500000 per year from the dirtiest uh, coal plant in West Virginia. He also, his daughter works for a pharmaceutical industry and was caught price-fixing, price-gouging on uh, EpiPens. They are bought and owned by corporations. This isn't an honest ideological disagreement. And so we're having a conversation about the price tag, the price tag, and call it the reconciliation bill, which is just a Senate procedure, which is how we're getting it done. Instead of talking about it as what? The child tax benefit bill, the universal pre-K bill, the paid family leave bill, the paid medical leave bill, the tuition-free community college bill, the lower prescription drug cost bill, the dental, hearing, and vision Medicare expansion bill, the home care bill, the housing bill, the uh, climate change bill, the immigration reform bill the lower Medicare age bill, the Obamacare expansion bill. Like, this is the stuff that's actually in it. And as Nina pointed out, yeah, the original position of the left was $10 trillion, Biden's position was $6 trillion. They came all the way down to $3.5 trillion. And now, now we're being told, not only do you need to do one more round of compromise, which, okay, I get it. In the reconciliation process, that's what happens. But you have to get on that compromise, too, and negotiate against yourself. And they get all the way down to, now we're talking about $1.75 trillion? I mean, it's a sick joke. It's a sick joke. And they're probably going to strip all the climate stuff out of there. Uh, they're going to leave key, provi- key provisions to the curb. I mean, listen, I'd vote no if it's like this. I would have to vote no. I have no choice but to vote no. And it's not on me. It's on them. You know, th- this is the point that Nina's making. You already have the deal. You already have the compromise position. And... It's not the left that is the problem here that's reneging on the deal. It's Manchin and Cinema. They're the problem. And Paul Begala, Democratic Party Act, isn't it wonderful that there's a process where we continue to make things worse and worse and worse and worse and worse? And he's like, it's not, it's not about the process. It's about the people who are being impacted. This is disgraceful. And the fact of the matter is they are not front and center. They don't care about those people. They care more about their donors, which is why the military budget always gets massive increases, and nobody bats an eyelash. Nobody. So because Raytheon and Boeing and Halliburton and and Honeywell and uh, KBR and Lockheed Martin and all of them, because they give so much money to the politicians, there is no 
whining and crying about the deficit and the debt and can we afford this? They just do it. And then if they're pressed on it, they say, well, it's a moral necessity. Don't you want to, you don't want to protect America? Well, then allow me to flip that argument right back on everybody whining about the price tag and wanting to negotiate the reconciliation bill down further. This is about protecting my fellow Americans. Do you not want to protect your fellow Americans? Do you not want them to have paid family leave and paid medical leave? Do you have any idea how much higher depression and anxiety rates are because of that? How much harder it is to keep families together? I mean, it's really an anti-family position if you're against paid family leave and paid medical leave. You're going to be against it. You want to means test the child tax benefit? You want to means test that. And, and Joe Manchin said at 60000 you know what that means? If a mother makes 31000 and a father makes 31000 then that may, that's too much money to get the child tax benefit. So are, you're just coming out in favor of, of child poverty at that point. So the military bill is a moral necessity at $8 trillion over 10 years. But helping children whose parents collectively make $61,000 to keep them out of poverty, that's not a moral necessity. It's a sick joke, and it's, people better keep pointing it out. And look at how vapid and vacuous the commentary is from a Democratic Party hack. Raw, raw Democrats all day long. Look what Paul Begala says. I love that these guys are talking. Talking is good. I enjoy talking. Don't you enjoy talking? I think Bernie's more pragmatic than he gets credit for, and Joe Manchin is further left than he gets credit for. Tee hee hee. And Nina Turner's over there trying hard as hell to not face palm and start screaming. And she's right. Because... This is the type of conversation that we have in elite media, which is why all of you are much bigger fans of new media, because we tell the truth a hell of, in a hell of a lot more clear and concise way than they do, and they're not even really concerned with the truth. Well, thankfully, Nina Turner is, and she did a wonderful job there. Okay. All right. It's break time, y'all. When we come back, when we come back, we have... Um, Trump releases a hilariously crass statement on uh, Colin Powell's death and billionaire wealth soars. I'll give you the new numbers on billionaires. You do not want to miss that. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
Donald Trump is someone who has dedicated his life to serving himself. Colin Powell was the first black chief of staff. Donald Trump is the first twice-impeached president. I mean, I don't want to attack Donald Trump personally because that takes it down to his level, but he talked about being remembered. He will be remembered as one of the most graceless people who has ever graced this country. Colin Powell is anything but. And it's actually a political gift for Democrats. Every time he does this, he reminds people who revolted from the Republican Party, the suburban, the educated, the women voters, who used to be so important to our coalition, who now have run very far away. Every time he does this, every time he, he uh, invokes racial undertones of some of his statements, they, they go further and further away. So I'm sure you know, while Democrats are upset that he did this, it's also, and once again, another gift. It is a, it is a gift. Yeah, so here's my hot take. I don't think it's a gift to Democrats. I don't think anybody really cares. And I think that a lot of the outrage here is performative. So um, this is what Trump did last time. He would say something that's like hilariously crass, and then the media would melt down over it. But what does his statement say? Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. So the core of what he said there is he made big mistakes on Iraq. <laughs> I love the, but anyway, but anyway, rest in peace. Um, he made big, big mistakes on Iraq. I think that, if anything, that's being overly kind, mistake on Iraq uh, and weapons of mass destruction. And the fake news media is treating him so beautifully. Um, by the way, Donald, the media will give you this treatment if you learn how to shut the fuck up and move on. Because in the year 2048, when President Carrot Top nukes Venezuela, they'll be talking about, can we just return to the good old days of Trump where we had Republicans who were, uh, maybe we didn't agree with them, but they were a lot more reasonable. Cause, and how do I know that? That's what happened with George W. Bush. George W. Bush was probably a worse president than Donald Trump, and he's totally rehabilitated even in elite liberal circles. Why? Because they compared Trump to him, and they were like, oh, Trump is more, you know, crass and has no filter and shoots from the hip and disrespects everybody, so that violates civility and decorum, so we don't like it. So, yeah, in the future, you have a Republican president who's even crazier, you know, and, uh, says more ridiculous shit, and they will rehabilitate you, but you got to learn to shut the fuck up. Anyway, I digress from that point. The Iraq point from Trump is true, and they think it's actually too soft. Oh, he made big mistakes on Iraq. It wasn't a mistake. Colin Powell knew that uh, the Bush administration, that Cheney and Rumsfeld and George W. Bush wanted to go to war with Iraq. He also knew there was no good reason to go to war with Iraq, but he made the case anyway, and if it wasn't for him, because he had credibility in the media. So he went out there and made the case at the UN and held up the vial, the fake evidence, said, well, what are we going to do? We got to do what we got to do. We got to go to war. So he knew it was wrong because he argued behind the scenes against it, but he did it anyway. And so his, effectively, his worldview and his philosophy came down to, even if I disagree with it, if the boss says that I have to do it. Well, guys, I mean, that's the exact issue that comes up in international law and at, at the Nuremberg Tribunal, this idea that, hey, I'm just following orders. Okay, well, when you just followed orders, it led to the death of minimum 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq. Some estimates have over a million. 
So that's, that's what happened when you just followed orders. When people just followed orders, we did torture that was copied from communist Chinese uh, you know, manuals on how to torture. That's just following orders. Just following orders broke an entire region of the world and led to the rise of ISIS. That's what just following orders. By the way, it's a theme throughout Colin Powell's career. You know, he, he was also in Vietnam. Vietnam is quintessential. Hey, we're just following orders. Another illegal and offensive war, destroying a region of the world, massacring a landless peasants using Agent Orange and napalm. I'm just following orders. So in the framework of the morality of empire, that's viewed as a moral good and viewed as a necessity. You've got to be the good soldier. You've got you to gotta follow orders and do as you're told, even if the person at the top making the decisions, totally insane, neoconservative, imperialist war hawks, who if they had their way, would forcibly, effectively take over the world and, and put everybody under some sort of uh, corporate authoritarianism. So he, he's no hero. In fact, if you look at the things people are celebrating for, and you heard the commentator that, oh, he had so much grace, something Trump doesn't have. What, because he was polite when he spoke? We're supposed to overlook the rest of his crimes? What if Goebbels was a gentleman? Is it like, well, he's a nice guy, so he had a lot of grace, so that other stuff he did, meh, no. That's not the way we evaluate stuff. That's not the way adults evaluate stuff. What happens is only if you're in the club of the imperialists in the U.S. are you given the leeway of people saying, you know, you meant well, but you messed up. Do we ever grant that to, like, the Iranian government or the Venezuelan government? No, it's, it's portrayed as almost a caricature of a cartoon villain. Like, they're all evil and they can't wait to do more evil, and it's in the nature of who they are. Whereas on our side, the nature of who our leaders are is good gentlemen. And if they do something wrong, it's just a mistake for which we can overlook because, hey, they're really polite and graceful. No. And by the way, they might be upset he's calling uh, Colin Powell a rhino too. Well, Colin Powell did, at the end, flip parties. And he voted for, he stayed a Republican but voted for Obama in 08. And I think he actually left the Republican Party when January 6th happened, and he supported Biden, too. So to say Republican in name only, I mean, Colin Powell will probably say that at a certain point I was a Republican in name only. You know what I mean? But, you know, that would be a better part of, of his life. You know what I mean? But Trump's, of course, portraying it as a negative thing. But this is Trump being Trump, and it's hilariously crass. But there is a grain of truth, even though, if anything, he's too soft on Colin Powell. There's a grain of truth in this, and the media flipped out over it. And the media is acting like, you know, this is the worst aspect of Trump. No, the worst aspects of Trump are what? That he increased drone strikes 432% and massacred an insane number of civilians. That we had the highest, highest death toll we had in Afghanistan throughout the entire war in the year 2018 or 2019 when Trump was leading it. He said he was going to get out. He didn't get out. If anything, he increased the bombing campaign and killed more civilians. That we're still in Iraq under Donald Trump. That we're occupying Syria and jacking their oil under Donald Trump that he totally destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is a bureau that returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans, and he destroyed it on behalf of industry. The predatory payday loan industry gave him millions of dollars or a million dollars for his inauguration, and they turned around and dropped the new regulations against them and dropped the lawsuits against them. 
that his biggest legislative accomplishment was a tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. The biggest problem with Donald Trump is that he's just like George Bush in many respects, is that he's a standard establishment Republican. But see, the argument from CNN is we wish he was just a standard establishment Republican, but he's not. He's just so crass and impolite, and his violation of civility and decorum is what makes him uniquely bad. And I think that that's the reason why the attacks from mainstream media don't land on Trump. And by the way, what's my evidence of that? 2015 and 2016, when he was running, this was the nature of all the attacks against Donald Trump when he ran for president in 2016, and then he won. So what does that tell you? The ways in which you're attacking him are not resonating. You want to know why? Because most Americans really don't give a shit about the elites in the club. Most Americans probably don't know almost anything about Colin Powell in the first place. But, you know, to defend the honor of of Colin Powell or Hillary Clinton or John McCain and how dare you, sir, you're not going to, how dare you, sir, into defeating this guy. You're not going to do it. So that's the problem with, with elite media is that all they ought to do is circle the wagons and protect other elites. And that's not, that's not a, a poignant or potent way to take down a high-level charlatan and demagogue and con man, which is exactly what Trump is. No matter how much pearl clutching you do, it's not going to make people go, I'm on your side. If anything, the pearl clutching is fucking annoying. Now, of course, Donald Trump is crass as hell and incredibly narcissistic, phenomenally narcissistic. But when he says something with a grain of truth in it, you can't save your, you know, your most passionate outrage for that. It's just, it says a lot about elite media. The statement says what about Donald Trump, but we already knew about Donald Trump. He's incredibly crass. He's a psychopathic narcissist. He does make other people's death about him, of course. Um, and all that stuff is gross. It's also gross when the media can't help themselves, but at all costs, defend other elites. Even when some of the criticism of the other elites is totally accurate, if anything, too soft. So that's my take on that. Um, You really needed to be outraged at the right things with Trump. And there's a million things to be outraged by, the correct things. But they they weren't outraged by any of the right things. They were only outraged by the wrong things. And that's why the more they attack him, the more he either went up in the polls or stayed the same. Their attacks didn't land because they don't have their finger on the pulse. They have their finger on the pulse of other elites. And that's it. But the number of elites, by definition, is pretty small. And so they're like, this is a gift to Democrats. No, it's not. First of all, nobody's going to remember this. Second of all, most Americans don't know anything about Colin Powell. Third of all, you're just doing pearl-clutching performative outrage. If anything, people just get annoyed at pearl-clutching performative outrage. And so that's my guess as to how this will play out. You know, Within D.C. circles, they'll be like, oh, Trump said something unconscionable, and Colin Powell is a hero. But among regular people, they're like, I can't pay my hospital bill. Are you going to help me with that, or are you going to keep bitching about protecting some other elitist douchebag I know nothing about? That's my guess. Okay. All right, this is going to be a good one. This next one is as substantive as substantive can be. Here we go. 
So there's a new report that just came out on billionaire wealth gains during the pandemic, and it's even worse than the previous numbers that we saw. So this is for the, from the Institute for Policy Studies. U.S. billionaire wealth surged by 70%, 70% or $2.1 trillion during the pandemic. They're now worth a combined $5 trillion. And then the subheadline there, Senator Wyden's billionaire income tax Tapping those huge returns could raise big revenue to fund President Biden's Build Back Better investment plan. America's billionaires have grown 2.1 trillion richer during the pandemic, their collective fortune skyrocketing by 70%. So it was just short of 3 trillion at the start of the COVID crisis on March 18th, 2020. Now it's over 5 trillion on October 15th of this year. So this is from Forbes data analyzed by Americans for Tax Fairness and the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality. Um, Not only did the wealth of U.S. billionaires grow, but so did their numbers. So in March of last year, there were 614 billionaires with 10-figure bank accounts. This October, 745. The $5 trillion in wealth now held by 745 billionaires is two-thirds more than the $3 trillion in wealth held by the bottom 50% of U.S. households estimated by the Federal Reserve Board. That is quite a fact. That is quite a fact. Let me repeat that. $5 trillion in wealth now held by 745 billionaires is two-thirds more than the $3 trillion in wealth held by the bottom half of the country. Jesus Christ. Okay. Some more information. At the same time that billionaires were getting 70% wealthier during this pandemic, uh, 89 million Americans have lost jobs. 89 million. Over 44.9 million were sickened with the virus, and of course over 724,000 have died of the virus. And then there was a report recently from ProPublica on the tax situation with these billionaires, and it was incredibly illuminating. So billionaires have paid no federal income taxes in some recent years, Uh, and that includes Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Michael Bloomberg, and George Soros. The country's top 25 billionaires paid a tax rate of just 3.4% on $400 billion increases in their collective fortune between 2014 and 2018. So do you understand how that works? They're not taking an annual salary, so they're not making income. If you make income, you can get taxed. Let's say they make 400000 or more per year, or let's say a doctor, a surgeon, makes $400,000 a year. That person is taxed at about 37%. That's the top marginal rate. So if you're a surgeon and you work insane hours and you have an incredibly stressful job, you make four hundred grand, but you pay 37% because that's the federal marginal income tax rate. Um, But you have some billionaires who pay absolutely nothing, and again, the average was 3.4% on $400 billion in an increase in their wealth. Why? Because they don't take money as an income. They don't do that. Um, They actually, the way they describe it in the article, they do something very interesting, interesting in that it's a, disgusting loophole. They can let their money sit there, not take any money out, 
And then they just borrow from a bank and live off the money that they borrowed from the bank. And then eventually, when they do cash out, they cash out and it's, it's the capital gains rate. So it's money that you make through investments, which is taxed at a lower rate. I believe it's about 20%. So you don't pay any taxes. You let the money sit there because you don't take any income. And when you finally decide, I want to cash out, you pay the 20% um, capital gains rate. So a one-time 20% charge versus yearly 37% for somebody who makes way less, 400 grand a year. So the way the system works, it is completely and utterly rigged in favor of billionaires and against working people. So it's very possible if you're a construction worker, if you're an accountant, if you work a regular job, you pay a higher federal tax rate than people who are sitting on $10 billion, $20 billion, $100 billion. And the data shows that's exactly what's happening. And it's all perfectly legal. It's all perfectly legal because there are giant loopholes in the way the system works. And the loopholes are there on purpose to serve the well-to-do. So think about that. For the first time in our history, and this article came out about two years ago, somebody in the working class is paying a higher uh, tax rate than billionaires. And this is, again, this is all at the same time they saw a 70% increase in their wealth, $2.1 trillion added to their wealth over the course of the pandemic. So it's more concentrated wealth inequality where a tiny fraction has more than regular folks. This is totally unsustainable, guys. Now, they talk about Ron Wyden's billionaire tax. Um, another way you can address this is a wealth tax. So instead of taxing income, which, like I just described to you, that's what you get per year, uh, what you take out per year, instead of taxing income, you tax their, their actual net worth. So, like, all their assets, what they're worth. And if you do that, you raise way more money. And, you know, what you should do is basically mix a wealth tax and the alternative minimum tax. The alternative minimum tax was this tax that um, you can uh, people who are really wealthy can only deduct to a certain point. So I forgot what the number was. It was either 15 or 20%, but, like, you can only deduct up to 20%, but you have to pay the 20% in taxes. There should be a wealth tax. We could debate where the number should be, and maybe you do a graduated scale, a progressive tax system with the wealth tax, but, like, whether it's 2% or 5% or whatever, and there are, you can't use loopholes below a certain point. So if you have a 5% wealth tax, you have to pay the 5%. And you can crack down on all the different ways of trying to avoid the wealth tax, which, of course, you have an army of attorneys and experts trying to find loopholes for these people to keep paying no taxes. We, we can't afford to do that anymore. And also, I mean, this is an obvious point that very few people make. The extreme wealth, by its very nature, corrupts democracy. Because... When you have billionaires and corporations who are so well-to-do that they have more power than some nation states, they can just buy the government and make the government pass legislation in their favor and screw over working people. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So obviously this needs to be paired with uh, uh, campaign finance reform and corruption reform. And I've always said this is one of my – I think it's an unpopular position, but I don't know. Maybe it is popular judging by the original response from what you guys said. I think you should punish corruption like it's murder. It should be really cracked down on. And I think the bar should be lowered where you don't just have to prove a quid pro quo because quid pro quo is like, I will give you this money and you do that for me. And no, I think 
it's implied and not directly said in many instances. So don't tell me we can't get them if you connect the dots and the dots are connected, but you just don't have them verbally saying the agreement out loud. I think that's ridiculous. So, I mean, that's what you have to do. You need to do a wealth tax and you need to put an alternative minimum tax version of the wealth tax where they can't wiggle out of it. And, uh, you know, I don't know enough about Ron Wyden's billionaire tax, but maybe that's an idea as well, or maybe it's similar to a wealth tax. I'm not sure, but we can't keep going like this. This phenomenal wealth concentration at the top has so many deleterious effects that really destroy the fabric of society. I mean, institutional trust is at a historic low right now, whether it's trust in the media, trust in the government, and it should be at a historic low because they're screwing you. And so one of the ways to help fix that system is to materially improve people's lives. And so if you tax the wealthy and if you redistribute that money in the form of terminating student loan debt, UBI or whatever, universal health care, fill in the blank, well then, as I always tell you guys, when you improve people's material well-being, then other social ills drop around it. So I have no doubt that you'd have addiction drop, depression drop, uh, anxiety drop, mental illness drop, bigotry and xenophobia drop. All these problems would still exist, but they would come down significantly because, you know, people are struggling so mightily because they can't get their basic material needs met that it increases all societal ills. So it's good for everybody if you tax and redistribute. Redistribution of wealth is the duh position when you have something that's as lopsided as we have it now because it most certainly is not a meritocracy. So you have to remember that. It's not like the harder these people work, the further they go. No. They've rigged the system. Some of them are lucky. Some of them are born into wealth. But either way, uh, some of the hardest working people make next to no money. And so that's not a meritocracy. So tax and redistribute and give everybody a fair shot. And I'm telling you, it'll bring down all societal ills if you address this stuff, stuff substantively, substantively excuse me, and materially improve people's lives. Okay. All right, next. This is really interesting to me. There are countless centristy Democratic um, Twitter accounts that are much more rah-rah Democratic Party than I'll ever be. And even they have now turned on Joe Manchin. They see what's going on. They see the game. They know that... Uh, Biden and Pelosi nominally are on the side of let's get this $3.5 trillion bill passed, albeit incredibly weakly. They don't know how to fight for it. And maybe they don't care nearly as much as the left flank does. Centrist Twitter got the message that actually Joe Biden is a Republican in Democrats' clothing. And so even they have turned on him. This is a, a, an ad that was just released by hardcore centrist, a guy by the name of Don Winslow. And, I mean, these are people, if I'm not mistaken, this is a dude who really was not a big fan of Bernie, you know, uh, was really rah-rah team corporate Democrat. Even Manchin has gone too far now, and these people who previously would have been his, his allies have flipped on him. Watch how brutal this ad is. What was your salary last year? About $18 million. It pays to be a member of Joe Manchin's family. Joe Manchin has represented West Virginia for 40 years. Delegate, 
State Senator, Secretary of State, Governor, U.S. Senator. Forty years and West Virginia is still the second poorest state in the country. Economy. West Virginia ranks 48 out of 50 states. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Healthcare. 47 out of 50 states. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Education. 45 out of 50 states. Thank you, Joe Manchin. Infrastructure. Wait for it. 50 out of 50 states. Manchin has an estimated net worth of $8 million, while the average annual income of West Virginia is just 26000 Manchin receives a taxpayer-paid salary as a U.S. Senator of $184,500. So he didn't get his $8 million there. Nice job, Joe. So where does all the money come from? Manchin receives $491,000 annually from his son's coal brokerage company, Enersystems. His wife, Gail Manchin, received $613,000 from Enersystems. That's $1.1 million to Manchin and his wife from his family's energy company. Manchin makes five times more from his family's energy company than he does as a U.S. Senator. Joe Manchin has blocked President Biden's infrastructure plan from moving forward because he wants to kill legislation to replace coal-fired plants with clean energy. Manchin is selling out his own country to protect big coal and big oil. We own him. Joe Manchin, I talk to his office every week. Um, he is the kingmaker, uh, and he's not shy about sort of taking his claim early. The chairman of the committee that regulates coal shouldn't be a part owner of a coal company. This is Heather Manchin, Joe Manchin's daughter. After lying about having an MBA, she was named CEO of Milan Industries. She artificially jacked up the price of EpiPens by 461% and was awarded with a 671% salary increase. West Virginia is poor, poorly educated, and broken, but Joe Manchin and his entire family have become multimillionaires. West Virginia, abused and suckered for 40 years by Joe Manchin. Damn. That was a hard-hitting ad. And that was something that these people would never say unless and until Manchin crossed Biden, which he's doing. Truth is always a defense. That's all accurate. That's all correct. Uh, I've read all the articles on it. There was a great article in The Intercept called, I think, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire that lays out in great detail the amount of money that he's making from the dirtiest coal plant in West Virginia, the amount of money that he's making with investments in dirty energy. This is the guy who's the head of the climate committee that's going to determine what gets in that reconciliation bill. So where we are at the mercy of an openly corrupt senator, that doesn't seem to make much sense, now does it? Unfortunately, the corruption in Washington is so thorough that they don't even see it as corruption. It's like asking a fish about the water. They'd be like, what? What's water? They think, what? what's corruption? This is just how it works. We take money from industries, and then we serve those industries. Duh. And you've got to balance that with the needs of your constituents. No, you don't. You should just be listening to the needs of your constituents. By the way, there's another great point that it didn't make it into this ad. This ad hit almost all the major points about Manchin and how corrupt he is. But there's an article. I forget who. Maybe it was Rolling Stone. It was some... I wish I could remember. There was this wonderful article that detailed how there's a, a, there's a pharmaceutical company in West Virginia that uh, really, you know, provided some of the few decent jobs in West Virginia, and the person who previously owned it cared deeply about creating a community in West Virginia and also selling the drugs at a reasonable price, and what happened is when the new management took over after the 
old guy, uh, other guy passed away, uh, they immediately started to look towards jacking up prices and outsourcing the jobs. And that's exactly what they're doing. And every single time the working people at this plant, American manufacturing of pharmaceuticals in West Virginia, this is what we, you know, during the pandemic, what did everybody say? Well, the problem is the supply chains all go to China. We have to create our own medicine, create everything here. I mean, we'd be better off doing that, wouldn't we? Can't be dependent on, on all these other countries. We should have American manufacturing here, especially high-level manufacturing like pharmaceuticals. Well, every time these people tried to reach out to Joe Manchin, he was nowhere to, nowhere to be found. He wouldn't take a meeting with them. He wouldn't talk to them. Think about that. Some of the best jobs in West Virginia, they're going to close the plant and outsource it. And they look to Joe Manchin for help. He's nowhere to be found. Won't say a word about it publicly. You're telling me this guy's not corrupt? See, that's the main point, and the media won't tell you this stuff, is that this isn't an honest ideological disagreement. I can handle honest ideological disagreements. I love honest ideological disagreements. I search out things I disagree with, but I think an interesting and intelligent case is made for those things. Um, this is Cinema and Manchin are the most corrupt Democrats, and it's showing in the negotiation process over this $3.5 trillion over 10-year deal. And that's why the child tax benefit and universal pre-K and paid family leave and paid medical leave and tuition-free community college and lower prescription drug prices and home care and housing and climate money, that's why it's all on the ropes, because these guys are beholden to industry. And now even centristy Democratic voters have figured that out. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Never in a million years, never in a million years did I think that some of these hardcore Twitter Dem centrists would turn on the mansion types, but here we are. And the other thing is, don't give me this nonsense of, he's just representing the people of West Virginia. No, we've seen the polls. This Build Back Better bill is, has majority support among Democrats in West Virginia, independents in West Virginia, and Republicans in West Virginia. So you would just be wrong if you're saying, he's just being a West Virginia Democrat. No, He's being a corrupt Democrat. And Bernie Sanders, who's pushing hardest for this, is the West Virginia-type Democrat who's trying to deliver for the people who live there and work there. So that was a great ad. That was a wonderful ad. And I want to see a hell of a lot more of that. I wish that was running in, on West Virginia, you know, on TVs in West Virginia nonstop because we'd be in a much better place if that was the case. He'd feel the pressure, and he would concede a hell of a lot more. All right, next. So Tucker Carlson went on this interesting Daily Caller show, which is uh, it's sort of like a left-right Daily Caller show, I guess you could say. What was the name of that CNN show? Crossfire. It's like a Crossfire, the Daily Caller's version of it. And um, he was probably expecting softball questions, but the left host decided to give him a real question. And it is hilarious watching Tucker babble and squirm. So I, I have a question here about Fox News. Um, yeah. <laughs> you said Fox News has no vaccine mandate. But according to Newsweek, the company requires unvaccinated employees to submit to daily COVID testing, which is stricter than Biden's mandate, which calls for weekly testing for businesses that employ more than 100 people. Is Fox News denying the civil liberties uh, of its employees by being stricter than President Biden? 
I don't know. I mean, you should probably ask Newsweek. It sounds like they've got a pretty precise handle on what's happening.
because he told whoever his radio provider is, you could have me or you could have your vaccine mandate. And so people on the right are hailing him as some sort of hero, but he's also on Fox News all the time, may have a contract with Fox News, and he's not saying, I'm going to stop going on Fox News too unless they change their policy. So looks like his principled approach only goes so far now, doesn't it? Just be honest, man. I mean, I don't understand how people can look at the bulk of the evidence here, understand that this guy's lying through his teeth, and then trust him in other ways. It just, that makes no sense to me. That makes no sense to me. You should be honest and upfront with what your real views are. And Tucker's flip-flopped on COVID. Remember early on there were some, uh, some pieces about how Tucker Carlson went to Mar-a-Lago to tell Trump to take this thing seriously. And that was at the time when the rest of the country wasn't taking COVID all that seriously. And so he was playing like, I'm the contrarian and I'm the smart guy on the right saying the right things. And then as soon as society caught up and was like, this is a real problem and we should, you know, take it as such. Then he flipped and became more of a contrarian on it and started doing the standard right wing line of going after uh, the efficacy of the vaccines, which he's been doing now on a regular basis. And of course, going after all sorts of mandates, whether they be hard mandates, which I also don't agree with, or soft mandates. So... I mean, it's just stunningly dishonest, isn't it? It really is. And listen, I mean, this sort of puts in perspective how Tucker Carlson has bounced back and forth from network to network, seemingly having a different ideology every time he landed somewhere. He was just looking for a niche, and he found his niche. And this is the role he's playing and the character he's playing. And when he's asked a tough question about, hey, your ideology doesn't really line up with your personal actions here, his answer is, okay. Next. So Meghan McCain um, apparently released some sort of memoir. Okay. She, she was the host of The View, the conservative host on The View. She left The View. And um, now she's doing something that's utterly predictable, which is she's going to go around bashing um, The View hosts and play the victim. And so she, now she went into the safe space of Sean Hannity's show and look at how dramatic she is about her experience. And let's watch it, and then I have a lot to say about it. Um, the last moment was actually my second day back from maternity leave, and I had very severe postpartum anxiety, and that moment um, triggered a panic attack backstage. I vomited in my office. Um, it was horrible. I started crying between commercial breaks, and it was the moment that I just thought that my four years uh, in an anthropological experiment in left-wing media had come to an end because um, I really enjoyed my four years at The View in the sense that I found it a great challenge. It's a huge platform. People watch it. It's the number one show in daytime, but you are targeted if you're the token conservative and you are treated differently. And it's been interesting having my uh, book excerpt released today because people just really don't seem to be surprised at all, but there is validation in hearing it from my mouth. And I felt like it was really time for me to show my story instead of having it through the lens of the liberal media and the liberal people who were leaking from internally on the show I worked on. And I felt like it was important for mothers to hear that it's okay, you don't have to put yourself or your pregnancies in a position where you could possibly have your health or your mental health put in a position of toxicity. And I decided to leave after I became a mother, and that was ultimately the game-changing moment for me. You, Megan, you even went as far as to say you felt like you'd been slapped, and you, you, you called the work environment, you know, toxic, direct, and, and purposeful hostility. And none of that looked fun to me. And, and I can say, when 
complete honesty, I've had minor little skirmishes here and there with, with a few on-air talent, but nothing like this at all, ever, not even close. I mean, this, this is like a cancerous environment. Yeah, and it's all very personal. That's the thing is that being a conservative woman in mainstream media is deeply threatening. Being a woman who can hold her own on a show like that proved to be ultimately threatening. So it became more and more personal the stronger the show got. That was the ironic part of it is the better the show did. After we won an Emmy, we were on the cover of the New York Times Magazine as the most important political show in America. I felt like the toxicity got worse and worse. I actually felt like the more successful I was on The View and the more moments I helped get them and the more I pressed liberal candidates and liberal guests on the show, the worse it got for me backstage. And then ultimately it started spilling out on air. Um, I went to The View and I probably would not have survived emotionally the past, you know, five years of my life between my dad's passing and cancer and everything that I speak about in my memoir happening at The View and other things in my personal life. If it weren't for the women I met at Fox News, Janice Dean, Kennedy, Dagan, Kat Timp, there's actually an entire chapter about Kat Timp and how she helped me through grief. I had a sisterhood at Fox that I lost at The View, and I know what women supporting women looks like because I had it when I worked at Fox News, and now I know what the entire opposite experience is. And it honestly, it's been difficult to open up to people like you, Sean, but I felt like it was important to say that there is real trauma uh, that is involved when you are targeted and targeted and targeted for not voting for President Obama, for being a pro-life woman, and I don't think that people who go into liberal spaces, which is basically every other space except Fox News and media, I don't think you should be punished for it, and I don't think your personal life should be impacted, and that's unfortunately exactly what happened to me. Megan McCain is trying to make a national news story out of the fact that she didn't get along with her coworkers at The View, something that was incredibly obvious to anybody who's seen even 15 minutes of a single show. Megan, this is not a national news story. She's basing a political and ideological worldview on who's nice to her and who isn't. I will never for the life of me understand these sorts of people, and they exist everywhere. This is also, to some extent, what happened with Dave Rubin, too. The idea that I, I didn't really get along well with the lefties, and the lefties were meanie pants to me, so now I'm a Republican and I think universal health care sucks. That makes no sense. It, it, here, let me explain this in a very simple way. I, it wouldn't matter to me if every single lefty I ever met in person was a piece of shit to me, and every single right-winger was the nicest people with open arms, sweet, accommodating, loving, happy, that would have no bearing on whether or not we should have a $15 minimum wage and unions and Medicare for all and free college and universal pre-K and an end to the wars. That has no bearing. Not, you can't say, oh, the right-wingers are so kind and tolerant, so now I'm pro-Guantanamo Bay. What? But this seems to be what happened with Meghan McCain and what happens with many people whose brains break in this uh, you know, political minefield of modern society. I think social media has a lot to do with it, generally speaking, not in the case of Meghan McCain, maybe a little bit, but more in the case with others who this has happened to. Um, but this isn't a national news story. So the View host, if I'm accepting Meghan McCain's version of events, which I take with a grain of salt, uh, her coworkers were assholes to her, so she experienced, quote, trauma. You made 
$3 million a year to give your opinions on TV in front of millions of people. You're set for the rest of your life, even if you didn't work for The View because your dad was loaded. What trauma? What trauma are you talking about? Trauma. Some people are mean to, some people are mean to everybody. Some people have good experiences and bad experiences with a variety of people throughout their entire lives. The difference is people don't try to make it a national news story and whine and moan to the country acting like you're some sort of colossal victim. And then, listen, when she brings up I had postpartum anxiety and, you know, so it was my second day back after maternity leave, well, then maybe you shouldn't have been there if you had postpartum anxiety. Have you considered that? That maybe you were experiencing everything in a heightened emotional state, so it's not really them that's the problem, it's you. Because, by the way, one of the instances she's uh, really reacting to here is that Joy Behar said, after Megan McCain got back from maternity leave, I didn't miss you. Oh, Oh, Megan, are your fifis hurt? Did you think Joy Behar would miss you deeply? No, the issue is if you had postpartum depression and you were feeling stuff on a heightened level, don't go back to work yet. Don't go back to work yet. She says, I had postpartum anxiety. I had a panic attack backstage. I cried. I vomited. Sounds to me like you have your own issues that you need to work out and you need to take those issues seriously and stop blaming everybody else for those issues. That's what it sounds like to me. So it's all the toxicity of the work environment. Toxicity of what? Somebody please explain to me. What's the line between we just disagree or even we disagree strongly and this is toxicity and it's traumatic? Because this is something about, you know, and it's not just Meghan McCain. This happens a lot in modern society. And to be fair, it happens a lot with the younger generation, too. This idea that, like, either silence is violence or massive disagreement is actually harassment or abuse or toxicity or trauma. No. No, people are allowed to disagree. People are allowed to vehemently disagree. People are allowed to yell at each other in a political disagreement, and you still can't claim, like, well, you know, it's, it's toxic and it's traumatic and it's unacceptable and it's abusive and it's harassment. No, no, that's weasel. That's weasel shit. That's a way to, to tap out and play the victim and not address the actual substance of what was being said. So I just, I have zero sympathy for this. And then she says, you know, she was bullied for not voting for Obama and being pro-life. No, they disagreed with you for not voting for Obama and for being pro-life. That's it. Am I supposed to think, like, Whoopi Goldberg is physically hurting you or, or jo- Joy Behar is physically hurting you? No, they probably said things that are dickish, but so goes life. Again, the real issue to me seems to be that Meghan McCain is an emotionally unstable person. And it's not that hard to see. You can see the evidence of it even as an outsider, Right. So I feel bad for her that she had postpartum anxiety. I feel bad for her that she's an emotionally unstable person. I feel bad for her that she's prone to panic attacks. I feel bad for her that she cried and vomited and all that stuff. But go, go take a walk. Go pet a dog. Go hang out with your kid. Don't go back to work so soon if your heightened emotional state is going to make you play the victim at any sort of disagreement or pushback. I, just, I don't buy it at all. And, of course, Sean Hannity, the hack he is, willing to play up anything that says that's Left-wing bad, right-wing good. And this is perf- it perfectly fits that narrative. So it's just, it's, it's a joke. Listen, having a bad relationship with your coworkers is not a national news story. And I'm sure they have a side of the story, too, where they would say, we weren't the problem, she was the fucking problem. You know, you think we were so hard and, and uh, tough in our disagreements. Look how she was. So, of course she was going to try to do this national news tour playing the victim after being the conservative on The View. No, not buying it. Nobody should buy it. Even if you're on the right, the idea that you, you know, sort of 
think her version of events is the only version of events. And she, it was traumatic. It was so traumatic making $3 million a year giving your opinions on TV. <laughs> Sorry if I'm being an asshole in this segment, but, I mean, it has to be said. Somebody has to say it because what she's doing here is ludicrous. It is. All right, next. So Mark Levin is a um, total clown, a uh, far right-wing fool, and he, on his show, was baited into attacking child care. Now, remember, it's in the Democratic um, reconciliation package, and so this is why it's good when Democrats push for great things, because then you bait Republicans into unmasking themselves and showing the world what they really believe, which is abhorrent. So watch this commentary. Like this is the only generation of women with children who work. My wife worked, has a long, illustrious career while she was raising children. My mother worked a wonderful career too while she was raising three boys. My mother's mother, my grandmother worked. She was a single mom. She was raising two daughters, and she owned a bar, and she worked full-time. What is it with this generation? What is it with this generation? That women aren't going to be able to get back to work unless they have child care? I'm sorry. I'm not buying that, and I'm tired of hearing about it. Now, it's my job and your job to subsidize child care for people so they can go work? Seems to me we're getting awfully soft here. That's not what Americans have done throughout our history. And that's an excuse. That's glorious. So what is the part that he's not telling you? He's not telling you that in previous generations, specifically during the golden age of economic expansion in the U.S. post-World War II, you could make enough money to support a family on one salary. So the old school way they did it with the nuclear family and the white picket fence and the dog and the two kids and mommy and daddy, daddy was able to make enough money to afford everything and pay for everything. And mommy was able to stay at home and raise the kids. That's the way it worked. Then we had the absolute destruction of unions. We had the introduction in the late 1970s to rampant political corruption and legalized bribery after a number of Supreme Court decisions that effectively said money equals speech. And we have now a system that's totally rigged by corporations and billionaires. So you don't make nearly as much money on one salary. So now both parents oftentimes have to work. The majority of the time have to work. So then let's see. You have a kid, but both parents have to work full time. Hmm. What options do we have here? You can leave the kid alone, in which case they might die, or you can get this thing called child care. Now, if Mark Levin wanted to propose, uh, you know, uh, some sort of compromise here where he says, well, Kyle, this is how he speaks, Kyle, same as my Ted Cruz impression, but it works. Why not go back to the days where you can survive on one salary? I'll shake on it right now. Let's do it. I'd love to go back to those days where you could survive on one salary, but he's not going to propose that because he's on favor of that because he's also a corporate hack and a Republican hack. So he just wants the economic situations to stay the same. 
His favorite thing is tax cuts for the rich and deregulation. So the corporation is going to keep wages low. He wants the situation to stay the same where you need two parents working to pay the bills, and then he's also going to berate you about how you don't deserve child care and you don't need child care. I mean, look at what he said. My wife worked, my mother worked, my mother-in-law worked. I'm sure he's not giving all the facts behind that as well, by the way. Um, he says, what is it with this generation? Women need child care? I like how he even pronounces it weird. Like it's a concept he's never heard of before. Uh, I'm not buying that, and I'm tired of hearing about it. We're getting soft here. How is that soft? How is it soft when wages suck, you need two incomes in order to pay the bills, and you have a kid? What are you going to do? Now, some people are lucky enough to have a family member, maybe a grandma or grandpa who could look after the kid. Well, good for them. But they're lucky. Not everybody has that sort of situation. You know, people pass away at some point, too. People live in different places as well. So ideally, people have child care. No, ideally, you could live on one salary, but we ain't getting that. I wish we would. I'd fight for it, but we're not going to get that. So then, okay, you need child care. And notice, he, he was like, I, I have to pay for this? We have to pay for this? He never says that about our military budget, which is way bigger than the next 10 or 12 biggest countries combined, and most of them are our allies. He never says that when it comes to bailouts of Wall Street. He never says that when it comes to subsidizing big oil one of the most profitable industries in the world, and taxpayers give them money. He never says, I have to pay for that when they're already profitable? Me. The man is Ted Cruz, but I'm throwing it in here for a little bit too. He never says that. Anything that fits his priorities, he just, just stays quiet about it, and he's fine with us subsidizing it. But child care doesn't fit his priorities. Universal pre-K doesn't fit his priorities. Free college doesn't fit his priorities. You know, uh, higher wages and unionization, that doesn't fit his priorities because he's a right-winger. So anything that helps you, anything that helps regular people, it's an outrage. I can't believe that my tax money goes towards this. Anything that helps industry, the military-industrial complex, financial institutions, supports it. So you should just know what his priorities are and what his ideology is. Because it, he's showing you up front here. I'm tired of hearing about it. You're making excuses. You're soft. It doesn't do with being soft. It has to do with how the hell do you raise a kid when you need two incomes in order to survive, and so mommy and daddy have to work. Well, there's one way to do it. It's called child care called child care. I'd love it if we could survive on one salary. Some people are lucky enough to do that, but most are not. And so then you need child care. It's not some sort of moral failing of the parents. It's the economic, hard economic reality. You know, I think of uh, my situation. Uh, I was thankful enough where my dad made a decent amount of money growing up. He owned a, a Chevrolet dealership. He ended up selling that in the late 1990s, investing all the money and then immediately losing it. <laughs> He invested it in a company called Prodigy, which was supposed to be like the next Google. Have you heard of it? No, I didn't think so. It didn't end up being the next Google. So he literally blew millions of dollars in the stock market. Devastating. I think him and my mom, of course, had a giant fight over that. So anyway, my dad uh, made a lot of money. So my mom was able to raise my sister and I until I was maybe 12 or 13. And then after that, my mom went back to work. My dad lost all the money. And they split up too, by the way long stories. I can't really get into all the personal details now, obviously. Not, it's not for this segment. But bottom line is, um, I was lucky enough to have a mom with me for the first 12 or 13 years of my life. And uh, because we were able to survive on one salary, a lot of people don't have that option. And then later on, when both of them had to work, guess what? Well, I was sort of old enough to not need childcare at that point. You know what I mean? But would I have been able to live like that if I was six years old? and my mom and dad had to work, and I was on my own, I wouldn't have been able to, to do it. You needed help. You need it. So it's just he's ignoring hard economic realities because he's a hack. 
All right, next. Actually, final story of the day. Here we go. This story is so wild, I had to double take to make sure it was correct. And it's true. And it is. It is. I read the whole article. It's about um, it's the Washington Post editorial board calling for a new direction in our foreign policy. So take a look at this. Opinion piece from the, the Washington Post editorial board. We can no longer ignore Haiti's descent into chaos. Here's part of it. And it's a short thing, by the way. I highly recommend you read the whole thing. Yet for all its unintended consequences, outside intervention could also establish a modicum of stability and order that would represent a major humanitarian improvement on the status quo. And with it, the prospect of lives saved and livelihoods enabled. In the cost-benefit analysis that would attend any fresh intervention, policymakers must be alert to the risks, but also to the enormous peril of continuing to do nothing. They literally want to wage war on Haiti, want to do a military intervention in Haiti, want U.S. boots on the ground in Haiti. That's what this piece calls for. You can make this up. I thought it was a joke when I first saw it. So what happened? Recently in Haiti, the uh, president was killed, and now like gangs basically run the country. And it's a mess over there. And there was a kidnapping issue recently. Uh, some Westerners were kidnapped, and they sort of used that as the genesis and the reason for why we need to go in there and we don't have a choice anymore. What's so amazing about the article is the admissions they have in it as they still argue for an invasion. So they say, okay, we've done this before, and it didn't quite work out. And in fact, the last time we tried to do some intervention in Haiti, what happened is some of the UN workers who we sent there raped the women and fathered uh, children after they were raped. So the last time there was an intervention, the health and well-being of the people who live in Haiti weren't anywhere on the table, and they were taken advantage of and raped, and your solution is this time it'll be different? Were you asleep through the entire Afghanistan war that we just saw? Were you asleep through Iraq? Were you asleep through any of our, of any and all of our interventions? I mean, for the love of God, guys, I don't need to go through the list with you guys because you guys know our history with this stuff, but 1961, we invaded Cuba. 1965, Dominican Republic. 1982, Lebanon. 1983, Grenada, that's one people don't talk about a lot. 1989, Panama. 1991, Gulf War. Um, 1993, Somalia. 1994, Haiti. Um, The list goes on and on. You know this. We're an imperialist nation. Oftentimes, we don't even put up the veneer and the facade of doing it for democratic reasons. I mean, we propped up a dictator in Cuba. That's what we did. We propped up a dictator. And this idea that, like, well... We have to do it. We have no choice. It's the least bad of all bad options. Why are you granting us the right to be able to determine whether or not to even do it? We are not the world policemen. We're, in theory, supposed to abide by international law. And this notion that we always mean well in what we do, for the love of God, do you not look at Syria right now? We're occupying part of Syria and just jacking their oil. Is that, oh, we mean well? But no, it's, we're doing it for nefarious reasons. Read about the banana wars in, in, uh, you know, in South America. We waged a war for bananas, for a banana company. It's like corporate hegemony. So we try to keep our corporatocracy going. And this is why we do the things we do, for the reason every other imperialist nation throughout history does the things they do. It's in self-interest. So we're not going to invade and somehow, in an altruistic and benevolent way, look out for the people there. Uh, and 
but that's how they frame it. They frame it like, well, that's what we need to do, and that's what we should do, as if, like, that's really what's driving our foreign policy. By the way, this is in the Washington Post. The Washington Post, of course, Jeff Bezos um, is an owner of it. But also, there was a, like, $600 million contract or something like that with the CIA. Oh, well, would you look at that? So now the Washington Post editorial board is for every single war, and it's even calling for brand new wars. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? So now you want to invade Haiti as well. We were just in Afghanistan. Uh, we're still in Iraq. We're still in Syria. We're still doing a drone war uh, all throughout the Middle East. We're still in Somalia. We have, you know, we're doing a shadow war in Africa. We're basically cutting off all aid from Venezuela with sanctions. We're marching towards war with Iran instead of hopping back in the nuclear deal, which is what Joe Biden said he would do, and then he didn't do it. What do you want to do? You just want to close your eyes and throw a dart at the map and say, well, we're going to invade that place too. I, it's real baby brain shit, but it honestly leads me to believe at this point, hey, maybe they know how ridiculous it is, but since it's, they're basically just operating as the, the press outlet for the CIA, because the CIA people are the only people in the world who think this is something we should definitely do. I mean, it's, it's pillaging is what it is. They don't, they, the government doesn't even give a fuck about Americans. You think they give a fuck about Haitians? And, oh, we should definitely go help. Even if you grant them, which I don't, but you grant them that, well, we care about these people around the world, which is why we need to help them. Even if I granted you that, what's our track record? How's helping people going? The exact opposite happens. It always gets worse. And by the way, laughable, I'd love to see a poll of the American people. Do you want to start a war with Haiti? I mean, what would it be? What would it be? Under 10%? It probably would be under 10% of the country. Invading Haiti. And by the way, is anybody going to talk about the cost of this too? What about the cost? We saw what happened with Afghanistan and Iraq trillions of dollars later. Is anybody going to say, whoa, I mean, even, even if I agreed, I mean, this could be an open-ended war. We're going to, maybe we'll spend trillions again. We still don't have health care in this country for everybody. You want to spend trillions on a war with Haiti? It's just, it's beyond a joke, man. It really is. The best thing you could do is stop strangling these countries that are developing. And if you look at the history of Haiti, oh boy, did the U.S. and the West strangle Haiti. It was the first country that was ever created after a successful slave revolt. And then they put them in crippling debt to France. Crippling debt. It's really destroyed their economy. Then it was occupied a number of times. Whenever they moved democratic rule, like under Aristide, there was a you know, discussion of overthrowing Aristide. Invasions, occupations. Then you had Papa Doc and Baby Doc who were ruthless and vicious. And uh, you know, dictators who torture and all sorts of terrible stuff. And they think the answer is more Western intervention, which has proven to be a disaster. And we know is not for the reasons that they say it's for. So this is the Washington Post. You wonder why people don't trust the media. They say insane things like this and believe insane things like this. And this is how the establishment media tries to control the narrative and control the parameters of the debate and discussion. This is how it goes. This is how they do it. So now you think the left-wing position is maybe we shouldn't do it right now but we need to care about the humanitarian well-being of these people, so we'll consider it. And the right-wing position is, let's do a boots-on-the-ground invasion right now. That's the establishment state. Among the American people, nobody wants to invade uh, Haiti. But you do enough propaganda for a long enough time, and eventually you can drive those numbers up. It's really devastating, man. Nobody should trust these establishment outlets ever.
All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. Great episode of Crystal Kylan Friends this week. You have to check it out. We're talking to Jonah Furman, a labor reporter. He's going to tell you about all the strikes around the country. Definitely check it out. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.